In the 20th century, the Wasserman test was developed as a screening tool for syphilis, which led to widespread testing throughout the United States. As more and more people were screened, it was found that certain groups, such as those with lupus, had high false positive rates of syphilis. Some would also have increased coagulation times and counterintuitively clinical signs of thrombosis. It was later found that one of the syphilis reagents derived from beef heart, called cardiolipin, reacted with autoantibodies in these patients, thus giving a false positive result. As more case studies were published and specific antibody tests were developed, this presentation became known as the antiphospholipid syndrome, or APS for short. Today, your patient has antiphospholipid syndrome, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled, So the Clot Thickens, an Approach to Antiphospholipid Syndrome. All right, time for a minute physiology. APS is predominantly caused by three main antibodies, anticardiolipin, anti-beta-2 glycoprotein, and the nonspecific inhibitor, which was historically called the lupus anticoagulant. Nonspecific inhibitor, or NSI, is a general term for any antibody that prolongs a coagulation test by inhibiting phospholipids. This is because coagulation tests, like the APTT, depend on phospholipids to act as surfaces for coagulation factor activation. An NSI can inhibit this phospholipid reaction, hence antiphospholipid, and prolong coagulation in these tests. Despite producing a higher APTT result, APS antibodies actually increase your risk of having a thromboembolic event. This includes both venous and arterial thrombosis although the exact mechanisms are currently unknown. APS antibodies are just one hit in what is thought to be a two-hit model of disease. The first hit involves antibody formation following a trigger, such as a bacterial or viral infection. During an infection, our immune system attempts to create antibodies that target the pathogen and remove it from the body. Unfortunately, these antibodies can sometimes target our own body's proteins by mistake, through a process called molecular mimicry. This is when target proteins or sugars on the virus or bacteria resemble those within our own body. The antibodies we create against the virus or bacteria can then accidentally recognize our own cells and lead to autoimmune-like diseases, including APS. It is common for APS antibodies to be present during the acute phase of an illness and disappear when tests are repeated several months later. This makes it difficult to confirm how prevalent they are in the general population but they are estimated to occur in 1-5% to of individuals and increase with age. However, just having APS antibodies is not enough to cause APS, which is where the second hit comes into play. These second hits include factors that promote thrombosis and affect vascular integrity, such as infection, inflammation, for instance, in other conditions such as lupus or connective tissue diseases, oral contraceptive use, and pregnancy. Pregnancy is a unique aspect to consider in APS. Some patients will have APS and then become pregnant, at which time their underlying APS can cause complications. Others will develop APS during pregnancy and have symptoms that are primarily related to placental pathology and inflammation rather than thrombosis. 
In pregnancy, the beta-2 glycoprotein is highly expressed on placental cells, where it can bind to anti-beta-2 glycoprotein antibodies, one of the main APS antibodies. This interaction can lead to increased inflammation, complement activation, and vascular changes. The result is often early pregnancy loss, but late pregnancy manifestations such as preeclampsia have also been associated with pregnancy-related APS. APS is a relatively uncommon disease, but should be considered in any patient presenting with thrombosis that cannot be explained by known risk factors, such as immobility, recent surgery, or underlying malignancy. Thrombosis can occur in arterial or venous sites, with the latter being more common. Clues that could point you towards APS include a patient with recurrent thrombotic events of a younger age or presenting with an unusual site of thrombosis. Unusual sites can include the renal vein, cerebral sinus, or an arterial site. Arterial thrombosis is a distinguishing feature of APS, particularly when it affects the cerebral arterial system in the form of TIA or stroke. If you see a young patient presenting with thrombotic stroke and no risk factors, APS should definitely be on your differential. Similarly, if you have a woman of childbearing age who comes in with recurrent early pregnancy losses and no clear explanation, you should consider testing for APS. A history of severe preeclampsia prior to 34 weeks of gestation should also clue you towards a diagnosis of APS. A minority of APS patients will develop an extreme presentation referred to as catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome, or CAPS. This could be the first presentation of APS, so a high clinical suspicion is warranted. CAPS is diagnosed in the setting of known APS and or presence of APS antibodies. These patients will have three or more new thrombotic events in separate organs within one week and will usually present critically ill and with multi-organ involvement. CAPS is challenging to diagnose since official guidelines require biopsy-proven end-organ damage for diagnosis. Additionally, many disorders can present similarly, including DIC, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and thrombotic microangiopathies. Okay, so let's go see our patient. As in any patient, your first step is always to make sure your patient is stable prior to proceeding. Are they alert and oriented? How are their vitals and ABCs? One major concern in APS patients is life-threatening thrombosis, such as pulmonary embolism. Make sure your patient does not have any worrying clinical features for this, including hypoxia or sinus tachycardia. Once you're sure your patient is stable, you can then move forward with your assessment. As always, a complete history and physical will help direct you towards the appropriate diagnosis. In the case of APS, history should focus on previous episodes of thrombosis, making sure to document the location, context, for instance, provoked or unprovoked, and the treatment used. Make sure to take a detailed medication history because recent heparin exposure could lead you towards an alternative diagnosis of HIT. Ask about any recent illnesses or travel, including sick contacts, to identify a precipitating event. You should also make sure to ask for symptoms associated with lupus, given that 35% of APS patients will also have this diagnosis at some point in their lifetime. The symptoms of lupus are quite broad, but can include arthritis, heart valve disease, 
or levito reticularis, which refers to a reticular or lace-like purpuric lesion on the skin. Finally, female patients should be asked about any prior pregnancy losses, the associated gestational age, and placental complications, including preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. Physical examination findings will primarily depend on where the thrombus is located, which can be variable. For example, cerebral sinus thrombosis or an ischemic stroke will manifest with corresponding headache or neurologic deficits. A DVT in the lower extremity will show signs of erythema, increased swelling, and tenderness to palpation of the affected limb. Cardiac auscultation to identify any new murmurs will provide important information regarding valvular involvement. A complete dermatologic examination may reveal signs of lupus, including Raynaud's phenomenon, levito reticularis, or a malar rash. Finally, CAPS often presents with multi-organ involvement in a critically ill patient. On to our workup. If you are considering a diagnosis of APS, it is helpful to involve a hematologist or thrombosis specialist for additional workup and management. Initial investigations can include a CBC, hemolytic workup, and coagulation studies. CBC is an essential first step to assess for thrombocytopenia, which is common but generally does not fall lower than 100,000. Any significant drop or the presence of concurrent anemia should make you think about other causes or progression to CAPS. Anemia and thrombocytopenia should trigger a complete hemolytic workup, including a peripheral blood smear, bilirubin, LDH, haptoglobin, and Coombs Direct Antiglobulin Test, or DAT. Finally, coagulation tests like the APTT can suggest APS if they are prolonged. Recall that this is because the NSI inhibits phospholipids in the reaction to prolong the in vitro time. Be careful, though. Certain institutions use a lupus-insensitive reagent for the APTT test, so the patient could have an NSI with a normal APTT. It is important that you confirm this with your local laboratory director or technician. Ultimately, to diagnose APS, you will need to test for the specific APS antibodies, NSI, anti-beta-2-glycoprotein, and anti-cardiolipin. This will include ELISA or EIA for both IgG and IgM isotypes and may require hematologist approval prior to ordering. These tests are often not necessary during inpatient workup unless the patient is critically ill, so consider arranging for outpatient testing once the patient is ready for discharge. In addition, patients should be off all anticoagulation when this testing is done to reduce the risk of false positive or negative results. This also makes it more beneficial to pursue outpatient antibody testing since you wouldn't want to remove anticoagulation from someone in hospital who is critically ill. An official set of criteria called the revised Sapporo criteria are used to diagnose APS. One important point from these criteria is that you need at least one positive antibody test on two separate occasions and more than 12 weeks apart. This time criteria helps to limit the number of false positive cases since APS antibodies can transiently appear in the setting of illness. Additional tests can be ordered based on the likelihood of APS and consideration of differential diagnoses. Important differentials to include are systemic lupus erythematosus, aka lupus, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, hematologic malignancies, and the weird and wonderful proxismal nocturnal hemoglobinuria. Lupus should be considered in any APS patient since it can be present or develop in up to 35% of cases. 
Additional workup would include sending an ANA panel and complement screen. Another diagnosis to rule out is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, which can present similarly to APS. If the suspicion is high enough, based on a 4T score, for example, you should send for an anti-heparin PF4 antibody testing. If the screening test is positive, your local lab can assist you in arranging additional confirmatory testing based on what is available at your institution. If you are suspecting hematologic malignancy, such as a myeloproliferative neoplasm, a bone marrow biopsy may be beneficial. Finally, proxismal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH, is a rare disorder that presents with hemolytic anemia and unusual clots. Confirmation requires specific flow cytometry testing to look at membrane proteins on red blood cells. So let's talk about treatment. The basis of APS therapy is managing thrombosis. So anticoagulants will be your first line therapy. If the patient is unstable due to a thromboembolism, such as in a pulmonary embolism or stroke, they should first be stabilized similar to any other patient presenting with these diseases. Currently, there is no evidence to support antiplatelet or anticoagulant agents to prevent thrombosis in APS patients. Initial therapy for an acute thrombotic event may include low molecular weight heparin, since it's easy to use and doesn't require APTT monitoring, like unfractionated heparin. If the diagnosis of APS is previously established, the patient should be started on warfarin simultaneously as a bridge. Warfarin inhibits vitamin K synthesis in the body and leads to depletion of vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors. Because these factors have various half-lives, it often takes several days to achieve a therapeutic INR, so the patient is bridged with a second anticoagulant, such as low molecular weight heparin, to prevent thrombosis. Once the INR is between 2 to 3 for two consecutive days, heparin can then be stopped and warfarin can be continued indefinitely for secondary prevention. Direct oral anticoagulants, or DOACs, are a class of anticoagulants that have become quite popular for treating thromboembolism since they are taken by mouth and don't require monitoring. Unfortunately, studies in APS patients have seemed to show worse outcomes compared to warfarin. Therefore, DOACs should only be considered in APS patients who cannot tolerate warfarin. Treating APS in pregnancy can be challenging and depends on whether it is pre-existing or pregnancy-related APS. For pre-existing APS, heparin is the preferred treatment during pregnancy due to the teratogenic properties of warfarin. Postpartum, reintroduction of warfarin can begin. In pregnancy-related APS, low-dose aspirin is used to prevent placental microthrombosis as preeclampsia prophylaxis. Low molecular weight heparin can be added to this based on thrombosis risk. These patients can often present with severe complications and referral to a maternal fetal medicine specialist should always be initiated. Time for a Medicine Minute. A 2018 trial published in Blood looked at the use of rivaroxaban versus warfarin in high-risk patients with antiphospholipid syndrome. The study randomized triple positive patients with APL to either rivaroxaban versus warfarin. Specifically, the study found that the rivaroxaban arm had a significant increase in events, which was primarily driven by arterial thromboses. In fact, the study was stopped early due to an excess of events in the rivaroxaban arm. While there was no difference in venous events between the two arms, the authors cautioned against using rivaroxaban for these high-risk triple-positive patients who present initially with a venous thromboembolism. 
In the study, three of seven individuals who eventually developed an arterial outcome presented initially with VTE. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, So the Clot Thickens, an Approach to Antiphospholipid Syndrome. This episode was written by Dr. Stefan Jevtik, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Mark Crowther, hematology, and Dr. Serena Gundy, obstetric medicine and general internal medicine. This episode was recorded by Allison Lai. Sound production by Nafis Hussain. The Internetwork series is created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Allison Lai, Leah Karinopoulos, and Zara Morali. Theme song by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.